Hello, it's Friday 19th of November, I'm Andrew Pearce and this is the Andrew Pearce Show coming as ever from the Daily Mail Newsroom. Fascinating poll of historians on the favourite monarch of England. You might have thought it would be Elizabeth I or even the current one. No, it's a king called Athelstan. Quite. Who he? Also, we're talking about the fact that more and more countries in Europe are requesting proof of third Covid boosters before they're going to allow international travellers to cross their borders. The row over the cancellation of part of the HS2 project. I'm speaking to the leader of the Yorkshire party. But first, she's back. It's Meghan Markle. She's given a cringeworthy interview to Ellen DeGeneres and she's caused controversy in the United States by overtly politically campaigning using her title the Duchess of Sussex. Royals aren't supposed to be involved in party politics. So she's back, Meghan Markle, the Duchess of Sussex. She was with Ellen DeGeneres, the talk show host, on Thursday. And in a wide-ranging interview, she renewed calls for compulsory paid family leave in the US. It's her first big TV appearance since that notorious tell-all with Oprah Winfrey. It's caused quite a political reaction. The Republican representative of Missouri, Jason Smith, condemned Meghan Markle for interfering in American politics and even suggested she should be stripped of her title, the Duchess of Sussex, to stop her using it to gain political leverage. Ingrid Seward is the editor of of Majesty magazine and a long-time observer of the royal family. Um, Apparently, Ingrid, when she cold calls the senators and congressmen, she says, hi, I'm, I'm the Duchess of Sussex. So she is using her title to get access to them. Yes, I think that was not one of her cleverest moves because, I mean, she should have realized straight away that, um, uh, you know, they, they would take her call because of who she was. I mean, if she, if she really wanted to do this seriously, I think she should just go back to being Meghan Markle um, and, and just drop the Duchess of Sussex title once and for all. And also, it, it's, I mean, I know it doesn't matter in America, but it is a British title. And if you're going to use it, you should use it properly. And she is actually not Meghan, the Duchess of Sussex. That would mean that she, she was a dowager, you know, that she was a widow or divorced. She, she is actually uh, the Duchess of Sussex, a royal highness, the Duchess of Sussex. Or obviously she can't use the HRH. She's the Duchess of Sussex. So if you're going to split hairs, that's the hair. Yeah, quite. Split. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and of course, Harry must know the difference between being Meghan, Ma- Meghan, Duchess of Sussex or the Duchess of Sussex. He, he's met enough. Um, well, think Sarah Ferguson. Well, I mean, yes. And the royals are very particular about the titles that they, they scatter about. And I would have thought Harry would have known and would have said, well, actually, actually, uh, Meg, that's not, you know, that's probably not a very wise way to go about it. But, you know, but of course, Without her title, Meghan is just Meghan, isn't she? But I mean, yeah. she's got enough gravitas and she's got enough fame now not to have to, to use it, I would have thought. Yeah. What did you think also of that skit with the street vendor uh, where she, um, well, I mean, there was a lot of, I mean, I, I've read some of the reviews in America. People were open mouthed by the dancing and singing in front of the street vendors while referring to herself as mommy. Well, it, it was part of the program. It's, it, I suppose, actually, do you know, I thought she's probably found her forte there. Um, I think that it, it's a bit like, because, uh, you know, obviously people here mostly haven't seen it or don't know what the show is. It's a bit like 
Kate uh, Middleton, if you like, or the, you know, the Duchess of Cambridge, going on anchor Anton Deck. It, it, you know, basically, you're made to do silly things. But, I mean, Megan, you know, she's an actress, so it was easy for her. I thought she did it rather well. Yeah, and of course, she needs, she knows, she's got to keep the brand alive. Ellen DeGeneres is one of the biggest names in US broadcasting. It's another woman, of course, uh, and so she probably thinks um, it's the, the, the Netflix and the people who are backing her financially probably really approve. Well, the audience certainly loved it. Um, I mean, I'm not saying that they were the particularly the most high audience, but it was chat more than chat show audience. I mean, they loved it. They loved her. She, they, they, when she talked about, you know, moms having time, more time off, they, you know, they, they applauded her. Um, but I, I do, yeah, I think she's really tr- treading on, on sort of rocky, rocky boards, you know, talking about the, the, it's a, bit, a big political thing in America, this, yeah, this it is. Uh, mother's having time off. And I think she, as much as she might feel about it, she should keep her nose out of it. Uh, it does make me wonder, there have been reports, um, uh, Ingrid, that she's got an eye on a political career at some point in the future, and that would sort of uh, suggest that, that she's already beginning it. I think she's always been very outspoken, hasn't she? And uh, you realise, looking at, at this TV show, my goodness, how how unsuited she was, really, for that royal role. But, I mean, she, she does like to put her opinions out there, as we know. She certainly does. She certainly does. Ingrid, it's always good to talk to you. That's Ingrid Seward talking on the comeback of the, well, she never really went away, did she? Meghan Markle on the Ellen DeGeneres show, of which, of course, we'll be seeing a lot of it, I guess, on our own TV screens in the next 24 hours. Thanks for joining us. So it's caused a predictable row. The Prime Minister, who'd promised at the general election campaign and promised after that that there would be HS2, which would be uh, the link linking the Midlands with the north of England, but now... That's been abandoned. But number 10 says the downgraded rail plan, they're going to spend money on other uh, parts of the rail network, will in fact amount to the biggest transport investment programme in a century. But it's fair to say it's gone down like a lead balloon with quite a lot of politicians in the north because they've scrapped the eastern leg of that high-speed HS2 and a promised new fast line from Manchester to Leeds has also gone. Bob Buxton is the leader of the uh, Yorkshire Party. So what's your view, Bob? It's a complete catastrophe for Leeds, uh, for Bradford. Let's not forget um, the new Bradford station has also been scrapped, separate to HS2. We've lost that as well. So Leeds and Bradford have missed out massively. Uh, other places in Yorkshire which could have um, linked in HS2 at Leeds, places like York, for example, they've also missed out uh, by extension. And we're seeing the same old story. Same old story. We get promised a new transport project. It gets delayed. gets downgraded. gets cancelled. To soften the blow, we get promised a new transport project. And that gets cancelled eventually too. So same cycle. Uh, it's something new. We did predict this. Uh, I, was, I was campaigning on these issues, in fact, in the mayor elections. Uh, in West Yorkshire came third. Uh, I, I said, you know, Bradford's not going to get its new station. We're not going to get our leg of HS2. And sure enough, it's happened. And it is a real catastrophe for us because when companies look to invest, look to create jobs around the country, um, looking at places often that are well connected to London, they have one base there. They'll be looking at Birmingham, they're looking at Crewe, looking at Manchester, uh, but not so much uh, Leeds, uh, Bradford and other places um, close to them. So it's, it's a catastrophe. It's not a surprise. We predicted it, completely predicted it um, for, 
a fair while ago, actually. But still, it's, it's a massive blow to us. What does it say about the Prime Minister's commitment and pledge to, to so-called levelling up? This was a major investment in the North, and it's um, been capsized. Well, he'll say whatever he wants to win a general election. Remember, he said of his Brexit deal it was oven ready, and then a year later it was a lousy deal that he had to renegotiate. He'll just say what he wants for election day. It clearly isn't levelling up. And just, just consider London. You've already got a fabulous underground network. We'd love to have that in, in West Yorkshire. Uh, and they're getting Crossrail on top of that. There's already talk of Crossrail too. And, of course, they're getting their bit of HS2. Um, compare that to, to Yorkshire... Um, we're, we're just missing out here, there, and everywhere, generation after generation. Um, there's no commitments to levelling up for Yorkshire at all. Um, yes, Manchester's going to be on HS2. I think sometimes Westminster sees Manchester as the north, as the whole of the north, and sort of their excuse when anyone says you haven't levelled up, they say, oh yeah, but what about Manchester? And um, it's not much good to us, frankly. In fact, it's actually worse than getting nothing. We're going to be further behind. Manchester, Birmingham, Crewe and London. So we're getting, we're getting relegated here in relative terms. And it will affect us for decades to come. It's, it's a terrible blow to the economy. And so levelling up the eight, it was just something which sounded good at the election. And it's certainly not, uh, it's not happening. It's not, it's not close to happening. And you know, be, be wary of the next, the next promise that's already been made. So we'll, we'll look at a, a Leeds tram network. But actually, that, that's a downgrade as well because all the candidates, including Conservative candidates, the mayor elections West Yorkshire wanted a transit system for the whole of West Yorkshire. And I wasn't just talking about trams or about metro systems with high speed. Now we're only even talking about a Leeds one. That's, that's the other downgrade which has happened very subtly. That's come out as if it's a new promise. No, it's a downgrade for what was being consulted on last year. So it's all downhill. It's not levelling up at all. It's just the election day promise as usual. Until Yorkshire has a stronger voice, has proper devolution, actual devolution, control of budgets not just token mayors, this will just keep happening. They're making our arguments for us very easily. We no longer have to work hard to convince people Yorkshire's missing out. They see it in the news all the time now. I don't know, just finally too, um, uh, I, Keir Starmer, the Labour leader, obviously trying to make political capital out of it, but that all went horribly wrong when he said how he'd always supported HS2. And of course, we know as early as 2016, he was campaigning against HS2. He even took a petition to Downing Street against HS2. So you can't rely on the opposition to, for, 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 for um, moral support on this issue either, can you, Bob? Well, um, no. Um, that's the problem. So we have first-past-the-post system, which promotes a two-party system. And so it's a choice of, it's one choice you don't want or another choice um, that, you, that you don't want. And so it's about HS2 itself. Um, for Yorkshire, it's the worst-case scenario. 100 billion being spent, 106 billion being spent um, around the country, but not, but not focusing on Yorkshire. So it's worse than nothing for us. If you'd have gone back in time, say, okay, we'll have no H2. We'll, we'll spend that money all in different ways, other ways to improve rail speed, rail capacity, and we'll be fair about it. That would be a better scenario than Yorkshire has right now. And I also said to people who are opposed to it, now, I've criticised HS2 project management. It's been poorly managed. Budgetary control is laughable. The estimate of costs has gone up to 30 billion. It just keeps going up. And some of the, some of the routes, it's a case of people in Westminster getting out a, a ruler and a crayon and drawing on the map. And there are, lots, there are some people who will be glad this is cancelled because their community wasn't properly considered. But, you know, the right HS2, one done with proper consideration, consultation, and budgetary control, is obviously a good thing. We need to improve rail capacity, and you need to do that with building new lines. 
you're upgrading some lines in the north. In the short term, that's chaos, as the work is taking place. In the medium term, it's going to be done slightly quicker than it was before. There's a teeny good bit in there for us. In the long term, when HS2 is completed, we're miles behind. It's something which is going to affect us for decades to come. And of course, we're here. We're, we're obviously campaigning uh, for votes. People have to use their votes. People sometimes feel powerless at first past the post. But what I say to them is this. If smaller parties get bigger votes, the bigger parties chase their votes. They adopt their policies. Now, it might be, it might be that Labour goes into the next election committed to Northern Powerhouse uh, Rail. Maybe a leg of HS2. Maybe other good things as well. And they might get some votes for it. Or they might not. They might make woolly promises. They might break them because it's always broken their promises. I said to people about the Yorkshire Party, this is our, our reason to be. This is what we campaign on, particularly transport spending was one of the probably the biggest single reason that we realized we needed party for Yorkshire and Yorkshire devolution. People are accountable just to Yorkshire. The Tories might still win the next general election. They might win it based more on southern seats than seats in Yorkshire, or perhaps seats in the vicinity of Manchester and Birmingham. They may still get a majority. They may still be fine and not pay any sort of price for this. If Yorkshire gets devolution, we can control the votes, control that discussion, get devolution. And you have people accountable just to us who wouldn't dare, wouldn't dare do this to Yorkshire because they would lose their seats. If you didn't like the people that got in, then you could vote for somebody else. But at the moment, Yorkshire hasn't got that voice. We don't have that sort of democratic responsibility. Um, you know, I disagree with, with Tracy Brevin on many things in Mary West Yorkshire, but she's actually said quite correctly. She, she wanted this like a HS2. She wanted the new station for Bradford. And she got elected, but it doesn't matter that people voted for her because the mayors don't really have the power. That's a good demonstration. We just had a mayor election. Winning candidates supported this, but it hasn't happened. The democratic will of the people hasn't happened. But the people of Yorkshire are still paying taxes to fund HS2 for London, Birmingham, for Crewe, for Manchester. A significant chunk of the tax you pay every month is going for something that doesn't benefit you. That shouldn't happen. We need devolution and proper control. All right, that's Bob Buxton. He is the leader of the Yorkshire Party, as you can tell, pretty damn furious about the latest Boris Johnson U-turn. Visit mailplus.co.uk forward slash subscribe to get access to all our podcasts, videos, opinion pieces and much more. If you want to get in touch, tweet us at mailplus or me at Tory Boy Pierce. A small but growing number of countries in Europe, including Switzerland, Croatia and Israel, are now requesting proof of boosters for arrivals. France has indicated the proof of a third jab will also be required for over 65s to access most venues from December the 15th. The Prime Minister warned only this week that the concept of full vaccination is going to have to be adjusted with a third jab becoming part of it. So what's that going to mean for aviation and travel? Alex Materis is an aviation specialist and has talked to this podcast many times. Uh, Alex, is it inevitable now if we're going to want to go on holiday um, to Greece next year, we're going to have to show we've had the third jab, let alone one and two? Hi, Andrew. Well, what's inevitable is that this is going to change. The definition of fully vaccinated for travel and for travellers is going to change. And as the pandemic has proven, it's going to change without one unified decision, without harmonisation. Instead, it's going to be the patchy picture that we've seen throughout the course of the pandemic, whereby some countries will say you need three. Others will say fully vaccinated means two plus. Some may say, well, we recognise that the young are not being offered the booster. And so we're going to keep it as it is. And there are already there is already talk in the industry um, from some countries who are saying, actually, 
we need to be very clear with our regulations and state if a certain number of months have passed after a dose, regardless to what number dose that is, well, you can't come in. And this is the conversation that is going on in the industry now. And I think we're just going to have to, like everything, try to navigate our way through it. And a need, though, I would have thought, Alex, is when you on your phone or wherever you've got your the the app the nhs app it's i mean i've had my booster jab this week there's still no sign of it on that on the app um so i've got a piece of paper but they can be forged and people lose them exactly and this is why again at least while there is a lot of talk about vaccine passports and i don't want to get too much into that at least from an international travel point of view the uk needs to come forward and say this is the exact document that you can travel with and clearly state that there is a digital and a paper copy, as you say, to, to avoid, you know, forged documents with the outlined um, vaccines that the individuals have had. But to, to go back to your earlier question, this is inevitable, unfortunately, that, that we're going to have to navigate our way through country by country regulations, depending on how far along they are with our vaccine rates, with our vaccine rollouts and what they expect from us, uh, foreign visitors. Just finally, Alex, we've seen that uh, COVID rates are increasing pretty dramatically across parts of Europe. Austria is going into a full national lockdown from next Monday. Germany is talking about increasing restrictions. Is that going to impact on travel to and from Britain, do you think? Will it impact on consumer confidence? It, it always does. It impacts on consumer confidence. But what we know is that when countries tell their citizens, you know, lockdowns basically mean you should stay at home and, and stop social contact, it then is immediately followed by, ah, we should also restrict those coming in who expect to have social contact. You know, while it's very well to, to lock down citizens of Austria, what about those who are coming in and expecting to, to visit Christmas markets or, or, or a nice winter break there? And so sadly, I think we will see that crossover into international travel restrictions, but hopefully not anywhere near as drastic as what we have seen um, thus far, you know, in, in the pandemic. I hope you're right. That's the aviation analyst, Alex Macheris. Thanks for joining us. So Deputy Sports Editor Tim Nichols joins me with the latest. Tim, it's 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 sport, but quite often these days, your pages, the it's issues that transcend the competitive arena. I've been thinking about the row over racism and the cricketer, but now the Aussie cricket captain is stepping down for sending well, we'll we'll put it we'll put it mildly, sending inappropriate photographs of part of his anatomy. What is wrong with these people? Well, I can't answer that question, but yes, you're, you're correct that the uh, Aussie captain just a few weeks out from the Ashes, Tim Payne, he stepped down uh, for these, sending these uh, explicit text messages and pictures to a female colleague. Uh, he sent them. What is so, so, so strange about this situation is that this, was, this all happened in 2017. He was essentially, there was an investigation. He was essentially sort of exonerated because it was two consensual adults, which you know, whatever we think of that, that that was the view at the time of Cricket Australia. They never made it public. And then if you remember, uh, back in 2018, Steve Smith, the captain, David Warner, one of their most uh, high-profile batsmen, and a young player called Cameron Bancroft were all banned for uh, ball tampering. Steve Smith uh, was obviously lost the captaincy. Tim Payne was appointed as the captain, as the sort of ex- acceptable face of Australian cricket as they went into this new era of, of being you know, a, a little bit more honest and, and, and they wanted a squeaky clean guy to lead that new era. Now, that was why Tim Payne got the job. 
some felt he probably wasn't necessarily deserving to be in the team on, on ability alone, but he got the job because he was meant to be squeaky clean. And yet, Cricket Australia knew that this had gone on the previous year. So it's a really, there's questions to answer for, for Cricket Australia, but it's a, it's a remarkable story as we approach the Ashes. And as you, as you mentioned earlier, English cricket's had its own problems this week uh, with, with racism and, and all sorts of other things. And so this is, um, this is a, a remarkable um, development on Australia. England's cricket fans waking up to the news that Tim Payne has stepped down and he, he is still going to be available to play in the Ashes, but he won't be captioning the team. Gave this tearful press conference today and... Uh, you know, I'm sure. Um, I'm sure the England cricket fans will have plenty to say down under when the teams meet uh, next month. I bet they will. I bet they will. And uh, Tim, big rugby match tomorrow. Um, England done, have done pretty good. They beat um, Australia, did they not? They now got a really big uh, struggle on their hands. It's against uh, South Africa t- on Saturday. It is. It is. And uh, as much as Eddie Jones, England coach, tells us it's not about revenge for the 2019 World Cup final when uh, South Africa blew England away, it is. <laughs> There's no getting yes. away from it. You know, yeah. uh, for a lot of the players as well who are on the Lions tour where South Africa beat the Lions in the summer as well, this is a real chance to lay down a marker with, with just a couple of years to go to the next World Cup in France. You know, it's the world champions. It's at Twickenham. It's going to be 82,000 there. It's going to be a really big task for England. They've got a few people missing out. Owen Farrell, they've got an inexperienced front run. We, we all know about the Springboks' strength in the, in the forwards. It's going, to be a, it's going to be a great occasion, a huge test of this England team. Uh, and we'll see how far along their progression towards potentially being a World Cup winning team, what they are going to be, because it doesn't really get any tougher than South Africa. It's a really, they're a real you know, strong team, uh, world champions, just won the Lions series. It's going to be a, a very big test for England. Prediction, Tim, well, who's going to win? I think England might just edge it, you know. Uh, I think home advantage will help. I think, you know, a number of a number of factors. But it, it's all about getting out in front, getting a, get, building up a lead, keeping that scoreboard ticking over because they have this infamous bomb squad, the, the, the Springboks. They bring on five forwards in the second half of the last half an hour when everybody's knackered. They bring them on and they just wipe the floor with their opponents. And often those guys who come off the bench, those five, and it's often the front five, you know, the big guys at the front of the scrum, they are often their bet that that, that would be the first choice, if you like, of the South Africa team. So essentially they start with the reserves and then they bring the first team on uh, and you need to make sure you're well ahead of them by the time they bring them on. Otherwise, you're in trouble. But I think England might just edge it. I hope you're right. Thanks for that. That is Tim Nichols, who is, of course, Deputy Sports Editor of the Daily Mail. Thanks for joining us. Now, if you were to ask most people who England's top or favourite monarch was, you might pe- expect people to say Elizabeth I, Henry VIII with his six wives, or even... Elizabeth II, our current monarch, but a poll of 84,000 votes cast by history buffs called Athelstan, the king who defeated the Vikings and united England for the first time, the top monarch. The poll was held on Twitter by historians Tom Holland and Dominic Sandbrook for their podcast, The Rest is History. And Dominic joins me now. Dominic, were you surprised by that result? I was a little bit surprised, actually, Andrew. So we drew up the seeds beforehand. We had seeds and non-seeds. Yeah. Athelstan was not even seeded. So Elizabeth right. I was the top seed, and then Henry yeah. VIII and Henry V and all the sort of obvious ones. But he just kept on winning. Um, he beat a couple of Edwards, I think, and then he was obviously up against the first final, and it was very close. So it was down to, I mean, literally a handful of votes, and he won by 50.5% to 49.5%. And 
you know what? He is the first English king. So he's the first king of something called England. So he's yeah. the first king to unite all the different. So you had Wessex, yeah. Mercia, Northumbria, and so on. Yeah. Um, so in some ways, you could say he's the founder of England. And I think for sort of our, our audience for the rest of history, it's pretty broad, but they're all interested in history. And so for people who know a bit about history, um, they off, they'll know that he created England, basically. So I think that's what it is. And especially these days, since we live at a time when the UK is under such sort of pressure and obviously Scottish nationalism and so on, there's just a bit more interest than there would have been 20 or 30 years ago in England and what England is and how it was created. Yeah, and he wrote, he ruled for 14 years. What was it, 925 to 939? Um, yeah. Uh, and I was a, I like history, so I was aware of him. But um, uh, if you'd been asked beforehand, Dominic, where you yeah. thought he might have landed in that poll, where would you have put him? I'd have said the quarters or the semis. So we did it as a knockout, as a sort of yes, World exactly. Cup. So um, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have expected him to get to the final. I thought Henry VIII would, would get to the final, actually. But I think that his record of, of chopping the heads off wives counted against him. And um, the funny thing with these sort of polls is a lot of the things that we once, we once thought would sort of endear kings and queens to the public don't anymore. So a good example is Victoria got knocked out. She was a seed and she got knocked out the first yeah. hurdle. And part of that was because, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, people, she'd have got kudos for being Empress of India. Yes. And for presiding over Britain at the height of its imperial kind of glory. But of course now, a lot of, you know, it's a Twitter poll, so Twitter kind of leans left and quite young. And a lot of those people w- will actually punish her for that rather than reward her. So it's quite interesting the way that sort of people's attitude to, so as it were, the great men and women of history has changed because people are much more uncomfortable with, you know, smiting enemies, killing Scots, Yes, killing t- of thousands of Frenchmen, things that when I was a boy were, were seen as tremendous things. Now yes. they're seen as a little bit uh, morally dodgy. We love the Armada, of course we did, even though it sank thousands of um, thousands of Spanish people died. Um, what of um, of Athelstan? Where did he reign from, uh, Dominic? There, of course, Buckingham Palace was. I think Queen Victoria was the first monarch to live in Buckingham Palace. But did he have a palace or a castle? Where did he live? No, no, no. They didn't. The Anglo Saxons didn't have castles. So they, he moved around a series of places. So basically, they saw themselves as the sort of heirs, the successors of the Romans who had left Britain a few hundred years earlier. So he would the the, the sort of big places that he moved around, places like Cirencester, Bath, Chester, they're kind of old Roman foundations. So that you've got to imagine them literally in the ruins of a vanished empire, um, sort of trying to. He would use Latin kind of inscriptions and things to say he was the rex or the basileus which means the kind of emperor um so there wouldn't have been a sort of palace that we would recognize the the house of wessex that's the house that he came from their base had always been in winchester um so so they, they do have kind of specific places that they spend time but they don't have a kind of settled you know this is my this is my palace this is my castle or anything like that partly because he spends a lot of his time fighting so he's going up and he's the first king to bring all of Great Britain under one kind of overlordship. So he goes up to Scotland, he goes up to Cumbria, he smites the Vikings. So he's always on the move, really. And I think that's one of the reasons we find the Anglo-Saxon kings quite hard to fix in our imagination. They're quite shadowy figures. There's not much written about them. So we don't really know what he looked like. We don't know much about him. We know he's very God-fearing. He's very pious. 
he doesn't marry or have children. So he's quite monkish, as well as being a warrior and a sort of politician. Um, and that's, what, again, one of the reasons, I think, why people have a sort of vague sense of Alfred the Great or of William the Conqueror, but Athelstan, the first really English king, we don't have so much of a sense. I think it's absolutely fascinating. Um, if, you thought, if you'd done a poll just finally, Dominic, on who is the worst monarch we've ever had, <laughs> yeah. who do you think would win? Well, we were actually only talking about this this morning, Andrew, right. about doing a poll on the worst monarch. Um, ah, so interesting. II, uh, who Edward II ended up, as you may remember, being um, put to death with a red hot poker, supposedly. Hot poker, yes, uh, very unpleasant. Richard II was, uh, he was deposed. He's another very bad king. I mean, my personal choice for the worst king is probably Edward VIII. I think abdicated, yeah. basically, after a matter of months, is pretty poor form. And by common consent he was an absolutely dreadful man sort of entitled annoying he uh, he might remind some listeners of a fellow who's in california at the moment actually um who is off, <laughs> is also very irritating and went he off is. with an american um yeah but uh yes we'll say no more about him i think but maybe they the both yeah. yeah but edward yeah, they and of course as you say the american connection they're both married intensely irritating american wives Indeed, exactly. Yes, you put your finger on it. Indeed, that's fascinating. That is Dominic Sandbrook on the uh, the result for a clear win for Athelstan, the first king of the United England, really, uh, in the poll for their podcast, which is fascinating, by the way. It's called "The Rest Is History." That's all we've got time for today. For the latest from the Daily Mail, download the Mail Plus app every weekday at five pm. You can listen to me all over again. I'm Andrew Pierce. This is the Andrew Pierce Show. Um, I'll be back next week. Have yourselves a great weekend and good night. Mm-hmm.